Teachers can come up with brilliant ideas daily and those ideas can impact their kids. It was dark when I found you. And sometimes we'll give them the skills so that those ideas can impact kids beyond their classroom as well. And that doesn't mean starting a business, doesn't mean you know moving to Silicon Valley and launching a website. We're encouraging teachers to do that within the school system. Today's soundtrack comes from one of the most powerful 90 seconds of video our guest has ever seen in his life. A story about the recovery of a woman with AIDS. A story he uses to demonstrate how small changes can have a huge impact. Aaron Tate is an incredible young man with a diverse range of experiences. He has several master's degrees from universities in Sydney and Cambridge. He's overseen huge humanitarian projects despite or maybe because of his time in active military service. And in 2015, he was named Australian Social Entrepreneur of the Year. He's also an author and co-founder of an organisation called Education Changemakers. I think what I most enjoyed about talking to Aaron is his humility. For someone with plenty of bragging rights, his work seems set on empowering others teachers in this case, to be a force for good. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. The best short films for lifelong learning recommended by teachers for teachers. This is Short Films Teachers Love with your host, Richard Lee. Where did you grow up? And um, I I noticed you call yourself an Australian, but you're you're one of these Kiwis, aren't you? Did you grow up in New Zealand? I was born in New Zealand, um, moved to Australia very young as a, as a baby, uh, moved back to New Zealand for intermediate, it's called New Zealand, but effectively junior high, and then back to Australia for high school. So I've jumped back and forth um, and uh, called myself an Australian and a Kiwi, but still support the All Blacks at the end of the day. <laughs> and what do you think gave you this, this passion for education? Yeah, so I grew up in a um, in a family that um, didn't have a lot of money growing up. We were sort of both sets of grandparents arrived in New Zealand by boat. Um, uh, you know, parents uh, weren't lucky enough to go to university um, from a financial point of view. But what we um, lacked for financially, we had a lot of entrepreneurial hustle as a family. So we'd always start businesses, and we're always trying to come up with ways to solve problems as a family. Um, so that that sort of spark something in my mind and then we would use a bit of that money to go into the family budget but would also use um, that money to travel so as a teenager I was traveling um, throughout you know Southeast Asia as a backpacker with my family so I saw a world with um, that was very different by this time I was um, was living in Western Australia as as a high schooler and I was traveling to these countries that were very different to where I was living so I saw this divide and I wanted to be part of um, trying to bridge that gap and it wasn't uh, education initially that that I moved into it was humanitarian work um, trying to come up with solutions to poverty that could make the world better faster mm. what was your, your family were your parents doing were they working in aid or something how, how come you're traveling all over the place so much yeah my parents are very interesting they um they're actually, they were Christians um, they still are Christians uh, and on weekends uh, we would uh, they had kind of a performing theatre troupe. Um, they were kind of hippies, but Christians in the same uh, the same breath. And so they would perform as clowns on the weekend, um, and you know attract an audience of a few hundred people in this clown skit that they would do at a market or in, the, in a community square. Or the parents would come over, and then they kind of share positive messages about the world. Um, so as a two year old, a three year old, I was dressing up as a clown, and as part of this sort of 
Christian activism kind of hippie world that we were living in. And so, um, but dad worked for Pepsi. Uh, Mum was a school teacher, um, but they just had this desire to um, to try to make the world a little bit better, and they they kind of bred that into us as well. I must read you this quote. I was just flicking through some things this morning. The quote says, it's not our job to toughen our children up to face a cruel and heartless world, but it is our job to raise children who will make the world a little less cruel and heartless. What do you think of that? Yeah, it's um, uh, absolutely. It's, it's quite topical. I mean, I, I surf um, and I've only just started surfing in the last couple of years after growing up bodyboarding for my whole childhood. And um, I saw a, I saw a guy in the surf um, the other day, you know, yelling at a uh, is a young Australian guy yelling at a, a guy of Middle Eastern descent, um, and just being really rude and aggressive and, and rather racist about it. At all. I um, there's kind of moments where I thought, do I just stand on the side here, or or do I kind of intervene and, and do something? And I decided to intervene. And um, this morning I was walking with my little son on the beach, and I saw the same guy again, the Australian guy who had been you know really rude and racist and aggressive a couple of weeks before, and my wife and I had a whole chat about this and we said, you know, maybe it does nothing, but maybe it makes Australia a little more welcoming and a little nicer. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's a great quote. Um, all we can hope for with our kids is that, you know, one of my favourite lines is from East of Eden by John Steinbeck and there's a, a word called Timshell, which is, means thou mayest. And really it says the idea of when we went east from Eden, when we left the Garden of Eden in that, in that old story, um, the only choice we had every day was to choose to be good or to choose to be bad. Um, so if we can raise children that will be conscious of making that decision each day, then hopefully that that's something we can do. Mm-hmm. I like that you're quoting from uh, from a, a book and a film, East of Eden. Is that right? It was a film, yeah. It's a film I haven't yeah. seen. Wait, what's, tell me about some of your early film memories. What do you remember growing up when you weren't out in the uh-huh. bush with your dad? Uh, we had one of those, you know, um, notepads with about 20 videos and if you if you deleted over the video, you had to rule it out and then put the new name in of the... But we had a couple of videos that said, do not delete. Um, and that was uh, um, the Star Wars series um, was, was in that. So we watched Star Wars, I don't know how many times. Um, and my father had 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I never quite got. I wasn't quite as... Uh, as, as Geeky as my older brother and my father were around space stuff. But, um, yeah, that's my recollection, having lots of movies that we could delete over and then a couple that were sacred and were never to be deleted over. <laughs> yeah. Education change makers. Uh, now, this has um, got a bit of a story in itself. What, um, let, let me take a, back, a step back. So we, we know that education has to change and even in Australia there's, you know, statistics about how we're less literate now and less numerate than we ever have been and, or, you know, than we, than we have been recently. Ed, educational standards are on the slide. So tell me a bit about what Education Changemakers does to help address this. Yeah, we believe that the pace of change in education can be accelerated, but that's, uh, that, that is done best by school teachers and school leaders. They're the closest to the problem. They can test solutions faster than anyone else. And it sounds like such a basic notion that, you know, the people who are right at the forefront of the work should be doing the most important change work. But we think it's still worth fighting for in education because still there are academics, bureaucrats, um, top-down approaches that are trying to change education, whereas we think some of the best ideas coming are coming from the bottom up. So Education Changemakers started on that hunch about six years ago um, by myself and a guy called David Faulkner. 
I had been working in, in East Africa supporting startup entrepreneurs to build businesses to change their communities. And Dave had been working in the Northern Territory of Australia, helping teachers come up with ideas to change their schools. So we connected um, and, and started to share ideas and thought, what if we did this at, at scale across the world? Uh, now we do. We, we train and we support um, around 25,000 teachers per year now around the world. And we help them. We get invited in by governments usually. And we help those teachers identify problems in their schools, innovate solutions. If the solutions work, um, they can share them with other schools. If they don't work, we teach them that resilience to keep going and to try to find something that does work. So it's really fusing the ideas of entrepreneurship and innovation um, into education change as well. So that's what we're all about. I'm fascinated by that partnership too. You know, in the startup world, there's a lot of highly driven, self-interested, self-promoting people. There's, there's a lot of talk about collaboration, but even amongst the not-for-profits and social enterprises, there's a lot a lot more that looks like straight-up competition. And one of the things that, you know, I heard about Education Changemakers, you actually joined forces. So you met another mover and shaker. In fact, I think Dave was uh, a principal, wasn't he? He'd been doing some great stuff. Uh, and you decided to fold the work you both did in, into one organisation. Tell me about that process. Yeah. So we... Um we like to draw on what we call radical collaboration. So we like seeing, you know, when a, when a year five um, teacher works with a, a year 11 PE teacher or when someone who's into um, modern art works with someone who's into ancient history um, and seeing what sort of comes from these clashes. We think as, as entrepreneurs and as change makers, you can go alone, but it's like one hand clapping. It doesn't make a lot of noise and it's really tiring. So we like when people sort of come together and clash and ideas sort of bounce around. So yeah, we absolutely have done that. Um, if you look at uh, education change makers on the website, you can see, you know, we don't, we don't. It's not about Aaron and Dave. Um, it's about a movement of teachers doing great things. I did something similar when I started a nonprofit called Spark International with my with my wife Caitlin, and that organisation was backing startup entrepreneurs across Africa and Asia and the Pacific and here in Australia, and we merged with a group called YGAP. So YGAP is an Australian nonprofit that was very effective at fundraising and movement building. So we had the impact model, they had the fundraising and movement building, so we decided to join forces, merge to become one entity, and you know, saw, saw massive growth and, and improvement in our impact and our fundraising because of that coming together. So I think we need more of it. There's hundreds of thousands of, of nonprofits in Australia, and that's a great thing, but they're all fighting for dollars, they're all fighting often for the same causes, so the more that they can come together, the better. And the more that companies can come together, so Education Changemakers is called a B Corp, means a benefit corporation, which basically means we're a for-profit but for-good company. Um, the more that companies like that can be working together for the greater good, um, the better the world will be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what do you do on a practical, so you run conferences, you run workshops for teachers. Tell me about the activity you're involved with. Yeah, so we have um, we have a range of things. The deepest stuff that we have is is the Change Maker Program or the Change Leader Program. Change Maker Program is again we get invited in by governments, let's say in Tasmania or or Western Sydney, um, or some of the most elite private schools in Connecticut in the United States, and we will work with um, about fifty teachers in a cohort. And that's for the Change Maker Program. They are passionate. They're trying to make things work, and and we'll work alongside them. Um, through face-to-face workshops for about five days across the year, but also lots of that interaction because we know change is tough and it takes time. So in the Changemaker program, it's really the skills and the experiences and the systems and processes to identify problems, innovate solutions, and then embed and scale those solutions. 
The Change Leader program is the new work that we're doing, which is around how to effective teams do that. So when a team of principals and deputy principals say, our school could be better, and you know, five years later, it's significantly better, we're fascinated with what happened there. And can that be bottled up? So we've just been traveling around the world. We're just about to release our second book called Dream Team, which profiles these incredible teams who dream of a new future, but they also, you know, that play on the, the great American basketball team, the Dream Team. When you get these teams where you go, wow, they're fantastic and they're going to really succeed. So that's, um, that's the Change Leader and Change Maker program. Then we do idea labs and design thinking labs and all sorts of stuff um, around the world in these workshops as well. Mm. So that that leads sort of nicely into the the book that's already been out there for a bit, and it, and it's probably funny me interviewing about this book because you've probably done the book circuit and told everyone about it to death. <laughs> but let let's revisit it because um, from from what I've seen, it looks excellent. It's um, called Edupreneurs, and um, what I think grabbed me most is that a lot of there's, there's a this big catchphrase at the moment about start with why, you know, why do we do stuff in, in the business and startup culture? And, and I guess that's really important because it's good to be grounded in what you're doing and, and be motivated about why you're doing it. But I noticed that your book crosses out the why and the what and starts with how. Tell me why you've done that and surely you need to know the why before you actually start doing it. Yeah, it's true. Um, that's a bit of a response, you know, we, we saw in education these fantastic thinkers like Ken Robinson and these incredible speakers who, who get flown around the world, speak on these huge education stages. And what we, what we saw every time at these conferences, because we were going to them as well and speaking at them, was um, people would watch these talks and, and the talks were basically, education needs to change. And the whole audience would nod in agreement, yes, we agree it needs to change. This is why it needs to change because the future's changing and this is happening and everyone also nod, yes, we agree, it, it definitely should change. And then they'd say, this is, you know, the specifics of what we think should be happening. And then they would leave. Um, you know, their 45-minute talk would be up and the whole room goes, okay, well, what do we, how, how do we do this? Like, I'm going back to my school tomorrow. I'm going to be, you know, marking the roll in the morning. There's going to be 50 kids running into my form class in the morning. I don't know how to build this stuff. And the teachers, of course, know how to do some of that, but to do it really effectively and over and over and over again and really efficiently um, to be adapting to change, that wasn't being taught. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, here's Ian Thorpe winning the 100-metre gold medal at the Olympics. And everyone goes, wow, it's amazing. And you're like, you too could be like Ian Thorpe. And it's like, yeah, I'd love to do that. And then there's no swimming classes. You know, there's no, there's no one kind of jumping in the pool. So... Edupreneur was really, um, how do you do this? How do you go from, I really care about this, we call it almost that Jerry Maguire moment of like, this is what I care about in the world, I'm going to go after it. And we do a lot of work around that passion and the why and the how, uh, so the why right at the beginning. But then it quickly moves into, we're going to teach you the tangible skills to get this happening with your kids at two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon um, and testing it out over and over and over again. So, so it's very practical, tangible tips that we weren't seeing from the other big thinkers, um, who were talking around the world. On, on that score, do you think inspiration is a bit overrated? You know, there's a lot of that being, being inspired by people. You don't think we just need more people that are actually doing it? Yeah. And, um, we, we sort of refer to it as a rock concert, um, in some ways, you know, if you go to a U2 concert and you're there with your, with your lover, um, and Bono's singing these incredible uplifting songs and you look at your lover and it's like it's the most romantic thing ever. And then, But then you kind of have to drive home and the next morning 
the kids are waking up and it's all kind of back to normal. So, yeah, we wanted these highs and, we, and we, we'll certainly tap into that inspiration and passion with people we work with. Um, but then it was like, okay, what's next? Um, when the rock concert packs up and they pack up the drum kits and the guitars and go home, Beyond that, what's really happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the fact that you must be about my vintage, referring to you too. That's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, the but the book you've you've covered. Uh, just just give me an overview of the book. I think you you have you talk about these four stages. So there's dreaming, digging, making, sharing. Is this a kind of a roadmap to to making change? Then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we we actually sort of a bunch of years ago a bit of a breakthrough moment as as with our ideas was building what we call the change maker journey, and that starts number one with the why as you, as you mentioned before, and um, what are you passionate about, what do you care about? But the change maker journey is this fifteen step journey that people step through where they sort of say, this is what I'm passionate about, you know, this is the problem I think we're up against, this is the stats that are backing it up, here's why it keeps happening, you know, there's hundreds of reasons why the problem is there. Let's dig into understanding why. We focus on down on sort of one of those problems and then we learn how to innovate. So we don't come up with one solution, we come up with a hundred solutions to a given problem and then start prototyping and testing, just like an inventor would or a startup entrepreneur would. And then, you know, all of that sort of early innovation work takes us up to about step twelve. And the embedding it and the scaling it is, you know, the final ones of turn your cool idea into a real product or a program that can be shared, giving people the tools to turn their things into movements. And we're seeing this over and over again. Teachers who are stepping through this change maker journey um, are coming up with great ideas that impact their 30 kids in their class, sometimes their 400 kids in their school, and sometimes you know, many, many kids beyond the school. So we had an email yesterday from a guy in Tasmania who invented kind of a coding school for his 30 kids. Um, he scaled it to his school, scaled it to a bunch of schools, and he's now um, gone on and launched an organization that, you know, is, is training thousands of kids across Tasmania in how to code. Um, so that's a cool example of a teacher going above and beyond, you know, just teaching their class and, and handing in the report cards for their class. I'm still, there's this is sort of slight mismatch for me still between teachers who are like that, who are kind of waiting in the school, busting to get out to, to start their own thing. But there is surely a large swag of teachers both who come to your conferences and who have read the book who are they don't want to start their own business they they just want to make a few good things and and they might be more shy kinds of teachers who don't have that hustle and just kind of you know they're not such social animals or you know they, they don't have such big grand ideas what do you say to them how do you encourage them to be change makers in their own way yeah so um one of my favorite lines is by bobby kennedy one of my heroes and he says few will have the greatness to bend history itself but each of us should work to change a small portion of events. And the total of all of those acts will write the history of our generation. So it's a long quote, but what it's saying is, you know, I think the Nobel Prize shouldn't be given to individuals. I think it should be given to movements of people. So what we're part of right now and have been somewhat the catalyst for, um, one of the catalysts for globally is this idea of teacher-led innovation, that teachers can come up with brilliant ideas daily um, and those ideas can impact their kids and sometimes we'll give them the skills so that those ideas can impact kids beyond their classroom as well. What we see in education is teachers are brilliant at innovating solutions but often bang it hits the walls of their class or at least hits the fences of the school. Um, So we're excited now yes letting that innovation flourish within the school sometimes giving those mechanisms as well where it can go beyond the school. Um, And that doesn't mean starting a business, doesn't mean, you know, moving to Silicon Valley and launching a website. Um, 
we're encouraging teachers to do that within the school system. Um, so we're part of something called 100, which is, which is from Finland, and we've got a spotlight in Victoria that's launching this year where we're looking for the best 10 innovations we've seen in education in the state of Victoria. And those innovations will be shared right across the world by this organization from Finland called 100. Um, so it's 100.org. So that's one of the ways that we're trying to share these teacher-driven, teacher-created ideas beyond the walls of the classroom or the fences of the school. Mm. Where do you, uh, just back to your own journey, because you're, you're not a, a teacher as such, are you? So you spend, most of your time has been spent training other teachers. So how do you stay connected with teachers? You're, you're married to one, aren't you? <laughs> and and, uh, and to the conferences, yeah. Yeah, I'm married to a teacher and I'm, I'm uh, very open in saying that in the Education Changemakers team, I have the least education experience of anyone. Um, I'm ex-military. I spent seven years in the military as, a, as an Australian military officer. I then moved into humanitarian work. Um, my, the extent of my education experience is running a, um, a polite way to put it is a, a rather crazy school in, in a Tanzanian slum for street kids for a year. Um, and, and then it was launching my own um, organization, Spark International, which I talked about as a social entrepreneur and then launching Education Changemakers. So Dave and I deliberately started Education Changemakers with him as the education expert and me as the kind of radical entrepreneurial, social entrepreneurial mind. Um, so that works really interestingly because if we're both teachers, we would get a certain set of ideas. But I'll bring in something pretty radical. Dave and I will literally argue, you know, until the cows come home about it. And what we come out with is really galvanized and it's a radical idea, but it's kind of embedded in the school. Um, but then in the Education Changemakers team, we have guys like Luca Parry, who was, you know, the South Australian Inspirational Teacher of the Year. Um, Maddie Scott-Jones, who has, you know, multiple master's degrees in education and is a fantastic STEM educator. Summer Howarth, who, you know, wished to work for Aitzel in Australia and, and was a, a lecturer in education as well. And Nicole Dyson, who's a brilliant educator in, in Queensland. So we have these very strong educators coming in. Um, but in meetings with that, you know, really powerful education team, my job is to continually shake the boat up. And you were named the Australian Social Entrepreneur of the Year by FYA, the Foundation for Young Australians in 2015. That's a, that's a pretty cool honour. How did you get that? What did you do for that? Yeah, um, that was a, an honour I shared with, with Caitlin, my wife. Um, like I said, you know, military seven years and then, and then moved to East Africa and, and ran projects in East Africa. I, moved to, I went to Cambridge and studied my third master's degree at Cambridge, the other degrees I'd done while I was in the military. And then we launched uh, this tiny nonprofit. You know, we had no money for the first two or three years. We had very little impact. So we cared about how many people living in poverty had their lives significantly and measurably changed by ventures that we had supported. And in the first year, that was like two lives. You know, we fundraised you know, $20,000, $30,000, two lives were changed. Second year, a couple hundred lives were changed in Papua New Guinea by this metric that we used. Third year, when a few thousand lives changed, and then by the fourth year, things started kicking in uh, and it was, you know, 37,000 lives changed. Um, that was about year four. We're now at year six or seven and that number's well past 500,000 lives changed now. So I think we came in, um, the reason why perhaps Jan Owen and the Foundation for Australians team um, looked at us as this, you know, these trailblazers, they called us, um, was because we went in and people didn't believe that what we were doing was possible. They saw, you know, entrepreneurship at the later stages. Okay, I'll invest my money in this pretty good-looking business with a bunch of employees and hundreds of thousands of revenue, whereas we were going in and finding an individual 
with an idea that it impacted less than 100 people that probably was operating on less than $5,000 a year. So super risky. We say, you know, the metaphor is that we're going into the south side of Chicago playing three and three basketball looking for the next Michael Jordan. And we believed it was possible. We believed we could find these incredibly impactful entrepreneurs right at that beginning. But a lot of people in the sector said, you just, this won't work. Um, so I think that's the true definition of an entrepreneur in some ways. Um, and, you know, with entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and, and Steve Jobs doing this on, in spades compared to what we're doing it. But it's going in and doing something different, um, particularly when people think that it can't be done. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, scary and stupid, but there's a, there's a kernel of something that you hope is just going to be, is going to break through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, or the old, the old. You know, it's, it's a cliche that's that's used a lot in entrepreneurship. But it's like flinging yourself off the cliff and yeah. and trying to build the plane on the way down. <laughs> right. We just decided to do that in markets that had no plane parts um, and had <laughs> probably you know never seen a plane before. So um, you you have certainly been busy, and uh, yes, I'm sure there's there's lots of people who go. You're just too amazing with all the achievements that you have at uh, you know the age that you are. It's it's very impressive. Um, tell me a little bit about um, your interest in, in screen culture and, you know, I asked you about Star Wars and all that sort of thing and I've, and I've asked you to recommend three short films. Um, so let's just, just go through in the order that you've got them. The first one you've recommended is, is Tom's. Tom's didn't start with the idea for a shoe. In fact, it was the absence of a shoe that started it all. Argentina was beautiful. The music, the colors, the food, the people. But as soon as I left the city, I noticed this need. I knew nothing about shoes and very little about giving. But I had a simple idea. What if a for-profit shoe company used giving as its business model? One where for every pair of shoes sold, a new pair would be given to a child in need. One for one. They'd be shoes for a better tomorrow. Tomorrow shoes. So I called them Tom's. Yeah, so Tom's is um, one of the most successful social enterprises um, the world has ever seen. Um, it's a shoe company, uh, and it was started by a guy called Blake Mykoski. He saw when he was traveling to Argentina a whole bunch of kids who couldn't afford um, shoes for their feet. And he saw, again, you know, in the same week, this really cool Argentinian shoe design. And he, he said, well, what if I sold those shoes in Argentina? And every time I sold a pair, I would give a pair away. And started the company and, you know, they've, they've given shoes to tens of millions of kids now. Um, they just raised, you know, $500 million through um, uh, venture capital to grow their company. This is a for-profit company making a difference for kids. But I also love the way that they've learned along the way. They, they got a lot of criticism from um, people, sort of armchair academics in a way, who were saying, your model is not as good as you think it is. And and they were learning, and, and I think this story, in a, it's actually an animated film, and it goes for about five minutes, but it beautifully tells that story. It shows their humility where they were trying to learn and adapt, but then it challenges people to say, what movement are you building? Um, so they say, we weren't a shoe company at all, we were a movement. Um, so I use this when I'm working with entrepreneurs or even sharing this with young people to say, don't just launch a company, don't launch you know, just something about yourself on social media and Instagram. What is the movement that you want to be part of? And either you're the founder of that movement or you're a key follower in that movement. So it's a great question to ask, what movement are you building? This video is about Selena, named for the Topsy Foundation. 
The video about Selena is um, is probably the most powerful 90 seconds of, of video I've ever seen in my life. I'll build you a house in the oak tree outside And you can come back Whenever you would like I have worked and continue to work in some very challenging communities and I I'm able to see with my own eyes the power of, of, you know, a small change can actually fundamentally shift someone's life. And this is a video of a woman who gets on antiretroviral um, drugs because she's HIV positive and she literally goes from death's door to, you know, far healthier position over the course of these months that they're shooting her. And, um, and it just, it captures this in 90 seconds. It's, it's very clever. There's a bit of a trick to the way it's filmed, which I won't ruin for people who want to watch it, but it's, um, it's, if you don't have a tear in your eye after that 90 seconds, you, you know, you need to be watching more Dr. Phil or something to, <laughs> to, to check in with your, your emotions because it's unbelievable stuff. What, uh, so how would you use something like that? Is that something that you just find in, inspirational for yourself or uh, would you share it with someone? Tell, tell me what value that is. Yeah, so we use that as um, in two ways. One is... is reminding the entrepreneurs the power of what they do because sometimes we get we get so tired and it's difficult work that these entrepreneurs do that I work with in particularly in Africa and, and Bangladesh um, it's hard it's they're, they're working in poverty it's traumatic they have death threats it's really hard work and um, that shows you you know that's one life changed some of you guys can point to 85,000 lives changed um, so just keep that in mind and the second is we, we teach these entrepreneurs the power of storytelling. And, um, and this is as, as close to the best thing I've seen uh, in the power of storytelling. Mm. What, do you, what do you think storytelling does for people? Why do you think it's so important? I think when you, when you tell a story, you show your true self. Um, so when you see people give TED Talks or, or give presentations and seminars, it's, it can feel quite polished and quite slick. Um, when someone tells a story, their story or, um, or someone else's, they're sort of digging into something more kind of primal. You know, it's this idea of sitting around a fire telling a story or connecting history or sharing culture through story. Um, and, you know, maybe I'm showing my age here a little bit, but I think we're telling stories, you know, our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. Um, we used to watch feature films and then, you know, MTV told us that we can actually do a film in three minutes. Um, and then, you know, Vine and, um, and Snapchat and these things told us, no, it can actually be five seconds. Um, so, I mean, how short is this going to get? Uh, so sometimes I, I hope that who are engaging in Snapchat can still engage in, you know, a, a three and a half hour movie like Schindler's List and, mm. and not be Googling the whole time, but actually be engaged in this story. Mm. Okay. And the last one you've recommended is called Resurface. You have zero control over the ocean. The only thing that you have control over is your attitude and your actions. In the United States, current rate is 22 veterans kill themselves every 24 hours. 
I went to Iraq and I came back a completely different person. You start thinking about the firefights you've been in, the dead bodies you've seen. Excuse me. Yeah, so this is a this is a 20-minute short film. Um, I'm ex-military, and, and I, as an 18-year-old, served in, in the Middle East and in Iraq as a, as a military officer. And, and to be honest, came back with um, a bunch of post-traumatic stress around that. Um, I didn't do a fraction of the things that, that um, people did in Vietnam or World War II or, or even some of the, the men and women who have served in Afghanistan and Iraq since. But um, I still had my challenges that I needed to deal with. And this is a beautiful documentary about the power of surfing to help um, wounded warriors, mentally or physically wounded warriors. And it's very subtle. It doesn't make too many judgments. It just shows these men and women um, surfing and, and um, the brilliant sort of facilitators who are trying to work them through this experience. And it's just lovely. If you're a surfer, it's great to watch. If, if you know someone who's served, it's great to watch. Um, if you believe in the ability of or the power of someone to kind of change their life, it's, it's great to watch. So um, I was recommended this by a guy called Joel Pilgrim who runs um, Waves of Wellness, which is a really cool Australian mental health program that also uses surfing. So watched it the other day and it just really, really spoke to me. Um, that's, I, I didn't realise you've, you've done active service as well. That's, uh, that's quite an experience. How has how that informed the rest of the work that you, that you continue to do? That must be amazing legacy. Yeah, um, people often say to me, "Would if I could do it all again, would I?" Um, you know, I joined the military for a free degree and to maybe like work for the UN one day. And I joined in two thousand and one, so the world changed in two thousand and one, and the life I had was expecting to roll out. You know, university, a bit of bit of peacekeeping work around the world um, changed very quickly. So nine eleven happened. I got a text message that I was deploying to Iraq. That you know, eight hours after nine eleven hit. Um, so did some pretty heavy things for my age up there. Um, and, and then, you know, I think that was a kind of a catalyst for perhaps from a, a position of guilt, um, perhaps, uh, from, you know, desire to kind of right my wrongs a little bit, um, that, you know, pushed me even further into the humanitarian work. So I was a, I was an active military officer and I was studying, you know, international development. And I was studying international politics while I was being part of this stuff playing out around the world. So, yeah, if I could go back and talk to a 17-year-old Aaron just before he joined up, I'd say, I'm not telling you a thing. You've got to work this out for yourself. Um, so I had to. The military forced me to work things out for myself. But it made me grow up very, very fast. And it catapulted me into the work that I do today. And, and you're obviously not anti-military. So you see the role of you know, fighting in conflicts over, or, you know, peacekeeping and all that sort of stuff as well. Would you say you're still pro what, we're, what we can do in, in a military way? Yeah, I mean, the, the last week I was in the military, I, um, I sort of staged a little activist uh, <laughs> thing of my own and I knew George Bush was coming to have dinner with John Howard. So um, I lived right on the harbour when I was in the Navy and uh, I strung up a big sign calling them both war criminals and... Um, and, you know, played the Motown song, War, What Is It Good For? Um, and uh, they definitely saw it. They were about 15 metres away. Um, so there's that part of me, which is an activist, which is very, very anti-war. And there's another part of me, you know, I, I like Barack Obama. And Barack Obama, um, in fact, I'll, I'll say I love Barack Obama and, and who he was and, and what he stands for. And 
he won the Nobel Prize, um, and his speech at the Nobel Prize uh, award ceremony was about the fact that we need armies and militaries, um, and sometimes fighting is okay. So it's this really int- I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it's a fascinating thing for, for us to be thinking about and engaging with. War is, um, is not always wrong or always right. Um, it's, and hopefully we have leaders who have the wisdom to make those decisions um, every time they choose to you know, sign that note to send people off. If it was their own children they were sending off, they would probably hesitate and just think a little bit longer. Definitely. Um, let's just, as we sort of start to round the, round the last corner, I'm just uh, a couple of things. And you've given me one example of things that people are doing, um, you know, out of the work that you've been able to do supporting them and, you know, the guy in Tassie. Um, are there any other examples of what's, what you've seen change in, in the work that you're doing, even if it's, you know, through the book? Have you had people read the book and go, wow, you know, that's incredible, you've got to write more? And just give me some, some solid, um, I guess, outcomes of your current work. Yeah, the book, um, for those that, that grab a copy or have a copy, it's, um, it's very much it's designed to, if you have a physical copy, to write in it and we say, you know, pour yourself a glass of wine and, and get halfway through the book and then you realise, you know, I can pour myself a second glass and finish this thing. Um, so it's very interactive. So we love seeing photos of people filling their books with notes and post-it notes and, you know, busting out with, with their ideas. Um, so we love getting those sorts of pictures from all around the world. Um, and we get those from everywhere, from Saudi Arabia to, you know, Santiago in Chile to, um, you know, to the outback of Australia. And they're, they're great to see. Um, we have um, teachers who stay in education, um, like Kelly Nielsen. She's in Bundaberg, one of the more challenging communities in Australia from an unemployment point of view. And um, she created a very small project with eight kids that would take them out of their mainstream classes and give them something far more un- engaging and entrepreneurial and innovative. Um, and that's been so successful that she's actually now got approval to launch her own satellite school outside of Bundy State High. So they're saying, this is so good, we're going to give you your own site, your own school and, um, and you know, experiment with your idea at a public school on, on mass. Um, so that's a really cool example of, of a teacher staying within the system and doing great things. Um, we see Maths Pathway, which is a mathematics company, started by two Teach for Australia alumni. Um, they were both incredibly intelligent guys, um, Justin and Richard, and they were teaching in, in challenging suburbs in Melbourne. And they thought there was a better way to teach mathematics. So they launched um, initially just kind of uh, their own classes that they were running in schools. Um, and we supported them to spin out of education and launch a company called Mass Pathways. And that company is, is changing the game in mathematics for tens of thousands of kids now in Australia. So that's an example of going as a business and then from the charity side, um, we back a school called the African School for Excellence, a model that when we met them were kind of just running tutoring programs in the school holidays. What they've cracked now is a school that is a third of the cost of a public school in South Africa per student per day and beats every, every school in the country academically. So unbelievable learning model that's incredibly affordable. So we've just raised a bunch of money as you know, an investment to grow those guys um, so they'll be impacting a million kids in five years um, with their model. It's, it, it's literally a continent changer. Unbelievable. And, and just, and I want to sort of wind back to this, is, um, you know, you've, you've mixed with a lot of people at a lot of high levels about educational change and, and all that sort of stuff. Now you've had a, a kid and he's four months old. Um, has that changed your, your view on education and, you know, what, what it actually means to educate the next generation? 
Yeah, um, in fact, they're just walking back in now, as you asked that, um, from, from a bit of a walk on the beach, um, Caitlin and, and little baby Finn. But I, um, I've been saying to people when they say, what school will you send Finn to? I've been saying, um, I don't think the school that he's going to go to has been invented yet. Um, and either I'll be delighted and I'll read about that school in a magazine in the next couple of years, um, or I'll be part of inventing that school um, myself. So, um, and that's not a critique of the schools that are out there because we have brilliant teachers doing amazing things right now and adapting to change. But I just think the pace of change that we're seeing in the next few years is going to be so rapid um, that, you know, there's a lot that we'll have to keep, but there's a lot that we'll have to, to do that's new. Mm. Where, do, where do you think homeschooling fits into that mix? Or don't you think it fits in? No, I think it does. Um, you know, there's uh, if you had a highly engaged parent who was willing to um, engage with their child, it's, it's what a beautiful thing. Um, but also the socialisation you get in schools is great as well. So it's not, I think it's less binary than most people would hope it is. It's maybe there's some learning in the home, there's some learning through, you know, technology soon, and there's some learning in that community as well. Um, so where that kind of lands in the future is going to be pretty interesting to see. Mm, for sure. Was there any other notes that you'd made? I've, I've sort of thrown you in a few different directions. Was there stuff that you that you thought I'd love to, to share this before we wind up? Yeah, the um, we, you know, we, we try to disrupt a bunch of things in education, but one of the things we're trying to disrupt as well is um is really the conference market in, in industry. So we launched something called Edu Change years ago. It was Dave Faulkner and I, co-founder of Education Changemakers, and a coffee machine, uh, you know, 200 people. Um, and, and that was great. We said, you know, it's going to be super cheap or free. We'll bring people together. And it won't be the classic, you know, thought leaders who hold the microphone. It'll be teachers. Mm-hmm. We're all about teacher-led ideas. So that's grown year after year. Um, this year, you know, it's, it's again, it, it's growing. Um, but that's held later in, in um, 2018, in October, and it's edu-change.com.au, and that's really our chance to get you know, 500 people in the room in Melbourne, um, bunches of people all around the world at satellite events, but then who knows how many through our kind of online streaming and, and trying to make this really accessible. So that's a fun movement as well that's growing and, and it's really giving teachers a voice and a chance to hold that microphone where at a lot of education events around the world, they're just not getting that. Mm, excellent. Um, yeah. Is there anything else? Have you got something exciting coming up this week, today, tomorrow? <laughs> Um, I can sort of quickly talk to the Dream Team project as well, that book. Um, so yeah, Edupreneur was, was our first book and, and Dream Team is our second. Edupreneur was around how does an individual go out and make change in education and that's sort of the change maker work that we we're talking about. But what happens, we're really interested in what happens when a group of principals and deputy principals and teachers say our school could be far better. Um, so we had a hunch of what that looks like because our team have, have done that a lot themselves and we've seen lots of schools that have done that as well. But we wanted to test those hunches. So we travelled around Canada and North America and, and New Zealand and Australia and we found incredible teams who have dramatically improved schools. And these are from the top private schools to some of the most challenging schools um, in, in challenging communities. And we, we learned a lot from those schools and we fleshed out what's called the change leader journey. Um, so Dream Team is a book coming out later in 2018, starting in the US, but then we'll be pushed out globally. And it is really about how does an innovative leadership team in a school fundamentally shift their school um, and what are the steps that they go through. And, it, the, you know, the little giveaway here is it's not easy. It doesn't take five months. Um, it doesn't take a hackathon over a weekend. On average, it takes about five years. So this is teams, you know, strapping themselves in for a lot of hard work 
Um, but following these really powerful steps and moving back and forth in them when they fail or succeed, um, it really is a bit of a roadmap to improve your chances of success for your kids. Um, it's sort of following the same momentum, but there, there are different insights that we're seeing, um, the different dynamics of a team trying to do this and engage a community rather than an individual being that kind of disruptive startup radical. Thank you for your time this morning. And um, it's been uh, – it's just amazing to hear your story. Again, it's, it's incredible what you're doing and uh, I wish you all the best with whatever comes later this year and, and going forward from there. It's fantastic. Yeah, thanks. And um, to all your listeners, the teachers um, out, the, out there and school leaders, um, you know, keep leaning into new ideas and challenging assumptions and creating new things and, um, you know, together we'll find that better, better world. Find all the film links and related notes in the description and look out for the edited highlights of this discussion on YouTube. This show is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. To learn more, visit edupodcastnetwork.com.